And our second lesson is found from the book of the Acts of the Apostles. It's a very important lesson in attitudes toward giving that occurred in the early church. I'm reading from chapter 4 from the New English Bible, verse 31, uh, through chapter 5, verse 12. And when they had ended their prayer, the building where they were assembled rocked and shook, and all were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. The whole body of believers were united in heart and soul. Not a man of them claimed any of his possessions as his own, but everything was held in common, while the apostles bore witness with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were all held in high esteem, for they had never a needy person among them, because all who had property in land or houses sold it and brought the proceeds of the sale and laid the money at the feet of the apostles. It was then distributed to any who stood in need. For instance, Joseph, surnamed by the apostles Barnabas, which means a son of exhortation, a Levite, by birth a Cypriot, owned an estate which he sold, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But there was another man called Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, who sold a property. With the full knowledge of his wife, he kept back part of the purchase money, and part he brought and laid at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, how was it that Satan so possessed your mind that you lied to the Holy Spirit and kept back part of the price of the land? While it remained, did it not remain yours? When it was turned into money, was it not still at your own disposal? What made you think of doing this thing? You have lied not to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he dropped dead, and all the others who heard were awestruck. The younger men rose and covered his body and then carried him out and buried him. About three hours passed, and then his wife came in, unaware of what had happened. Peter turned to her and said, Tell me, were you paid such and such a price for the land? Yes, she said, that was the price. Then Peter said, Why did you both conspire to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Hark! There at the door are the footsteps of those who buried your husband, and they will carry you away. And suddenly she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great awe fell upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these events. And many remarkable and wonderful things took place among the people at the hands of the apostles. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this part of his word. I want to speak to you today about the Christian use of money. During the Christmas season, of course, there is always a great deal of silliness that is involved in the gifts which we uh, uh, make to other people. And it is not really a product just of our own age or day. There is a, a rather old Christmas carol, or I guess you'd call it a carol, which has been sung about the 12 days of Christmas. Back in the, uh, there was a day when the 12 days of Christmas were celebrated from December the 25th to Epiphany, January the 6th. 
And there is a, a song which speaks about partridges in a pear tree and other gifts that are made uh, to, from one lover to another. Uh, some cost-conscious person the other day figured up the cost of all of these gifts in the 12 days of Christmas. I thought they might be a, a little relief to you to read that you're not the only silly people as far as gifts are concerned. For instance, if you bought 12 partridges of the American variety, they would cost you about $180. If you, brought, if you bought 12 pear trees for these 12 partridges to sit in, they would have to be seven or eight feet tall and about five years old, and they would cost you about $600. If you bought 11 pairs of turtle doves, they're listed at $165. 30 French hens are $240. 36 calling birds, the California house finch, are $90. 90 golden rings would be $800. Uh, 42 geese a-laying would be $315. 21 pairs of swans of swimming, Australian black swans, that is, would be $10,500. They come high. Eight maids of milking for five days, that, that is, you would use eight Kelly girls at $25 an each. That would cost you $1,000. 40 cows would really cost you $14,000. Nine ladies dancing, you've got to figure in the union cost, 36 dancing ladies for four days at $205 per dancer per day. And you would also have to put in eight pairs of toe shoes at $10 a pair each day. A total of $1,350 per diem expense money per day uh, for a total of $26,640, the show cost. 10 lords of leaping. In order to get 10 lords, you've got to go to Britain. That means you've got to pay them $1,000 a day and transport them from London to New York. And the total cost runs up to something like a $34,290, the hotel bill is $2,700, the food is $1,500. 11 pipers piping, 22 piper days, including oboist, clarinetist, flutist, plus a piccolo player too. Three hours of playing time, five hours of overtime, triple time for holidays, extra charge for accompanying the leaping lords, <laughs> the pension and the vacation allowance, and the total all approximately is $5,000. The 12 drummers drumming, we got one who drums over my study every now and then, is $1,008. And the total cost for all of the 12 days of Christmas in 1972, uh, with the taxes, the fees, the special licenses, and the preparation, is $136,472.96. Maybe the Rothschilds will try. <laughs> Now, this is how a silly use can be made of money. Well, what is the Christian use of money? People will do a lot of things to get money. They will lie, they will cheat, they will steal, they will work hard day and night, they will go through years of preparation in order to get money. Jack Crawford is the author of a splendid book, A Christian and His Money, which I heartily commend to you. He is teaching it in our CLC class uh, during this uh, stewardship season, and I hope you'll go and attend that class. Jack wrote this book when he was out in the Congo, and he told me he didn't have the benefit of an extensive library, so he had to really use his Bible. So he has an impressive citation of scriptures that are marshaled behind the teaching of a Christian and his use of money. This is an excellent book, and I commend it to you. He makes a significant statement in his preface. 
He tells us that if you will show me a man with a dollar in his hand, tell me how he earned that dollar. Tell me what he's going to do with that dollar. I can tell you a whole lot about his theology. And what he is saying is right. Because our money tells us a great deal about our relationship with God. If you go back into the Old Testament and consider the offerings that were made to God, they begin at the very beginning. We read that Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice to God than Cain. And his offering was accounted as acceptable to God. Offerings were made then. There has been from the earliest time a desire on the part of the worshiper to bring a part of what he possesses and dedicate it to the glory of the creator, the giver, the sustainer of life. If you begin to read on in the Old Testament, you will read that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. You will read that Jacob made a promise unto God to give a tithe of all that he possessed, a tenth of all he possessed to the Lord. If you study the Old Testament scriptures, you will find the prophets roaring out in judgment to the people who were called out by God to bear his special message and to be the vehicle by which his son would ultimately come into the world, the deliverer, you will find the prophets bellowing to the people in judgment, asking a, a question in a rhetorical way such as this, will a man rob God? And having the question brought back, how have we robbed God? And the prophet answered, you have robbed me by taking away tithes and offerings which should have been given unto me. You will have also a question uh, posed and an exclamation. You will have them saying, prove me now herewith, says God. Trust me by making your offerings and your tithes to me and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing for you which you cannot contain. The Old Testament scriptures are full of the worship of God through the devotion of gifts to him. When we come into the New Testament, and we begin right away with the words of Jesus, we are impressed by him and by his attitude toward money. Did it ever really occur to you that the Son of God worked in a carpenter shop, that he worked with a chisel, that he worked with a saw, that he worked with a mallet, that he worked with hammers and nails, he worked with his own hands, making and mending furniture, making yokes, working with his own hands, the very Son of God, in order to earn money. He earned money in order that he might be of support to his family. We read of our Lord Jesus Christ that he had not a place where to lay his head. Although he is the very Son of God, we are reminded that though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. No one in this chapel was born in a stable. Not a one of us was placed into the feeding trough of an animal at birth, but he was, the Son of God himself. And our Lord Jesus knew that money made up an important part of life because it is our medium of exchange, and therefore he had quite a bit to say about money. 
He told us about life itself to lay up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves do not break through nor steal. Dr. Crawford, in a, a very pointed illustration, uh, speaks in his book about one man who once took his pastor after he had preached upon this text about laying up your treasure in heaven into a big bank. And he went back to one of those huge vaults and he pulled out his safety deposit box and he showed it to his pastor. And he said, Pastor, here's one vault where moth and rust cannot corrupt and where thieves will not break through nor steal. And here I have some treasure. Well, two months later, in 1929, all of his stocks that were there amounted to practically nothing. What he had thought he had was not there. He had placed his trust in the uncertain riches of this life. Jesus knew about money. He used it often as illustrations in his parables. He told us to be diligent in the use of our talents. He commends us for the right use of money. He tells us how to watch in giving, and I'm sure that if the Lord Jesus Christ came back into the church today and walked into our schemes for raising money, he would absolutely put his curse upon it often. We raise it in exactly opposite from the way he often teaches us. Jesus said, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Oh, boy what that would really do to a lot of fundraising programs. Because how many people give really on the basis of vanity? I have back in my study a book that I'm reading called The Big Foundations. And it tells about people of enormous wealth. It tells us about the Rockefellers. It tells us about the pews of the Sun Oil Company. It tells us about the uh, Ralston Purina man, Danforth. It tells us about uh, the Mellons and the Carnegies. And uh, you see all of these big funds, and many of them have done good. And I'm not belittling them at all. But I'm saying that oftentimes much of our giving is done to enhance our own vanity, and not as Jesus taught it, and not as Jesus taught it. And we really have to think through this and be very, very careful about it. Money can be a great trap. It was for Judas. It trapped him. When he first followed Jesus, he listened to his words with a glowing heart. He loved what Jesus said. But then as time began to go on, Jesus was far too spiritual for Judas. Judas wanted more of this world's good and less of what might happen in Jesus' kingdom that he would set up. So Judas finally thought that since Jesus was such a hopeless idealist that he might as well get what he could out of it, and so he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. In the last week of Jesus' life, there comes an episode recorded for us in the 12th chapter of Mark where Jesus has come into the temple weary with the controversy that raged about him. He is watching people bring their gifts. And he watches those who are rich take their great handsfuls of golden coins and walk up to those trumpet-shaped receptacles 
uh, where the gifts are made in the treasurer and fling them down with great noise. That's where the word sounding a trumpet came from. They were trumpet-shaped collection plates. And here were people with gold and silver coins who would come and with a smile of great satisfaction and pride upon their face would fling down with great noise uh, these coins into the coffers and everyone heard and looked. Jesus said, don't sound a trumpet. Don't sound a, a trumpet like the Pharisees and the hypocrites do. He watched a, a widow. He watched a widow coming in with one tiny little farthing, a mite, a coin that was very insignificant, and yet it represented true sacrifice upon her point, part, and she placed that little gift into the collection plate and slipped away. I've often wondered about that widow when she went home that day wondering she had given from the love of her heart of all that she possessed to the Lord, and that sacrifice is precious in the sight of God. So many of us give out of our abundance, but we do not give where it really costs us. And you know, one of the things, one of the reasons that we do not is that we do not pray about our giving enough. It's easy to give, but it's hard to pray. And if we really pray about our giving, and if we really consider how our gifts shall bring glory to God, and if we consider how they shall bring honor to the name of Christ, how they will do good to many people, what a difference it can make. But many thoughtful young people are waking up to this. This past week I had an exciting long-distance telephone call from Philadelphia. The young man who called me is married about two, three years, I guess now. He is an advertising executive. He wanted no one to know his name. He said to me, I have $750, which I want to use this year. He said, my wife and I have been talking, and we're sick of giving gifts to people who already have more than they know what to do with. We want to give to some people who really need something this year. And what we would like for you to do is to help us think of some people who are forgotten. Maybe some people in a mental institution. Maybe some people in jail. Maybe some people in nursing homes or old folks' homes. We want to give to them. And not only do we want to give to them, but when we get there, we want to take the gifts ourselves, ourselves to them and present them to them with a word of encouragement. It's one thing to make a donation and it's another thing to walk into a place like Dogwood Manor or to go down to Broughton to the state mental hospital where you won't sleep so well for the next week when you think about the people who are there and make a gift and give a word of encouragement. You know, I, was, uh, I work, as those of you in the congregation know, at a psychiatric hospital, and I was reading one of the medical journals in a study of tranquilizers uh, on their 10th anniversary a few years ago. And uh, they made an amazing discovery. Tranquilizers have been, of course, a great blessing in the treatment of mental illness. But they noticed when they first came out that there was a, a great a deal of improvement in the patients who received these tranquilizing drugs that uh, alleviate anxiety and panic and fear. 
And uh, uh, then it began to peak. And then there was a leveling off where it was not these drugs were not accomplishing as much good. And so on the 10th anniversary of these drugs, the pharmaceutical firms set out to try to find out what had happened. Why was it so useful at first? And then why did it level out? You know what they found? They found that uh, their researchers with the tranquilizing drugs had gone around into these long wards of mental patients where there were chronically depressed people and they sat down with their little clipboard and their chart and they asked the patient their name and they asked them about their family and they asked them about how long they'd been there and they entered into a little conversation with them then they gave them the medication well now what was happening was this that the personal contact of another person the young intern and the researchers and the psychiatric nerds, nurses and aides in interviewing the people, that person-to-person -person interest had quickened a desire to live on the part of those who were depressed. So a gift without the giver is really bare, and that includes our gifts to God as well. We must give to him out of a love which we have for him. Now then, if you look at others, and I wish that I had time to tell you about them all, Jesus tells about a rich fool who speaks of my barns and my goods and my treasures that I'm going to have, and God speaks to him, thou fool, this night is thy soul required of thee. If you died tonight, what would you have done with your goods that would have really made any contribution? to the welfare of others or to your relationship to God and to the spread of the gospel and the love of God in Christ. And Jesus speaks about that. You can see uh, the attitude of the uh, people who owned the pigs when Jesus healed the demoniac of Gadara. And that poor man possessed of demons is clothed and in his right mind and serene and healed. But the people are concerned about their property. The pigs meant more to them. He can have his food who is now healed, but they want their pigs. That's one attitude toward property. Think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, who had accumulated his wealth in a dishonest way. And yet when he met Jesus, and really came into a transforming relationship to him, how he comes out and speaks to that crowd of people gathered around his front yard, and to those scribes and Pharisees who murmur and grumble that Jesus would be with such a person. Notice the change that has taken place in the conversion that took place that day with Zacchaeus. Lord, half my goods I give to the poor, and if I have cheated any man, I will restore him four times what I took away. I don't think Zacchaeus would have had much left, but I don't think he cared anymore. I think he had found someone who satisfied the hunger in his soul in a way that the money and the comforts which he had got through it had not done. And so he rejoiced in that newfound relationship with God, and he sought immediately to express in that way, his gratitude to God by showing it to other people and by restoring and making amends for the wrongs of which he had done. Zacchaeus is a good example of a hilarious giver. 
I think there was great joy in Zacchaeus' heart. And then that passage that I read to you a moment ago from the early church. This is one of those passages of Scripture that you will not hear many sermons preached on. It begins with a beautiful example of what had happened in the early church. Remember the circumstances. Remember that the resurrection of Jesus has occurred. And the apostles have now come to the stunning understanding that this was God in human flesh who dwelt among them. And that God has raised Jesus from the dead and he has appeared proving his resurrection. And showing the reality of God among men and his forgiving, transforming power and the fact that his kingdom is going to move. Pentecost has occurred and the Holy Spirit has come. And they are filled with ardor and with zeal for God. They begin to preach that Peter who cowered before the snide comments of a maid in Caiaphas' courtyard is now so bold that when he preaches and calls for repentance, 2,000 people will be responding. This is what's happened. Great power has come. A man who is lame from birth is dramatically healed by the power of God. There is a dramatic deliverance from jail. There is a, a, a dramatic healing that takes place again and again and again by the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit in these earliest believers. Now they will begin to experience the hostility of a world that knows not God nor Christ. As a result of that hostility, they naturally form a fellowship together. This has been called a primitive type of communism, and I think that's a wrong way to designate this, because in communism you don't have any choice. They take your property. Here it is a voluntary surrendering of your property, as the passage that I read makes very clear. They recognized that there were needs, and so they voluntarily gave uh, in a community of goods to help each other, but on a voluntary basis under the supervision of the Holy Spirit working in them and through the apostles. There, there was great joy there. I read to you how the place shook at one of their prayer meetings, how they testified to the resurrection of Jesus. And then you read this remarkable example of this man, Barnabas, from the island of Cyprus, who sold his estate and gave it. Then you read how that there existed in the early church as there exists to this day hypocrisy. There is told for us the account of Ananias and Sapphira and this ought to always be read in connection with that passage because that's what it's done for is to show the, the contrast in the two spirits of giving. One was voluntary with no desire for fanfare. The other tried to be deceiving of God himself. And so when Peter sees Ananias come in, Ananias wanting credit for something which he had not done and wanting a carnal praise of men, the judgment of God falls on him. Peter looked at Ananias and said to him, why have you lied against the Holy Spirit? Why did you lie about this? When you had this farm, wasn't it yours? No one made you give it. When you sold it and got the money for it, wasn't it your money to do with what you wanted to? Now, why have you tried to deceive God? 
Why have you tried to deceive this fellowship of the Holy Spirit? And under the shock of that judgment, Ananias drops dead. And then, of course, the sequel to it was his wife. I don't know what part she played in it. There may have been a conspiracy, but I know that she, uh, there evidently is a conspiracy. She comes in, Peter examines her, and the same tale is told, and she falls dead too. I expect Peter tried to be careful after that in talking to people about this uh, because of the judgment that came. But the judgment is there. There's no way you can take this out of the text of Scripture, and there's no reason to explain it away because it offended the power of God and because it offended this ministry of the Holy Spirit in that midst in which there were remarkable things that are taking place. And that hypocrisy is not tolerated by God. Now this also has a message to all of us, to the preacher behind this pulpit, as well as every person in this room and those who are listening. There again comes those words of Jesus that our gifts are to be given from the heart to God. They're to be given from our hearts to God. Not to be seen of men in a way that is to attract glory to ourselves. Now that's the key. God will not share his glory with another. And we are not to do that. You cannot use God. You cannot use God, and so we're not to do that. He wishes for us to know that. Then when we come into the a lesson which is given to us from Paul, we find that he gives many wonderful examples. In 2 Corinthians, we are blessed with having two full chapters that deal with the matter of collections that are taken up. Paul speaks of poor suffering people who made sacrificial gifts to others who were needy because they were following the example of the Lord Jesus, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Now look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. For they gave their very selves first, offering them in the first instance to the Lord, but also unto under God to us. This is so hard. I know a number of rich, rich people. But this is a very difficult thing to get across. That what God wants is your heart. What he wants is your love and loyalty and the surrender of your will to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The money God can get along without your money. I told one man this. God made it a good long time before your money came along. And he's still in business and he'll stay on. We got in a big quarrel over the widow's might. And he was telling me that poor widow didn't do any good. And he's worth millions and millions and millions. But you see that attitude. He is not under the lordship of Jesus with that attitude. I think he took the rebuke and I think he learned something from it. We had a few exchanges of rather hot words at the time, but I, I think he, he learned some lesson from it. But God wants your heart. He wants it given to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is making plain here. Uh, then when Paul comes into the second chapter, he gives us some very uh, wonderful words about it. Giving, number one, is a grace from God. It's a grace that God creates within us. It is a service. Uh, it is a part of the fellowship. It is a blessing. I have often thought 
For many of us, there is no credit to be gained in giving because for some, when you really give in the right spirit, it's such a joy to give that I can't see why anyone should get any credit for it. Uh, it's a happy uh, thing to be able to share and to give. Uh, I've often said to people, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. <laughs> uh, give till it feels good inside. That's what Paul says. Let everyone purpose in his own heart uh, what he is going to give. Each person should, should give as he has decided for himself. There should be no reluctance, no sense of compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. He loves someone who gives cheerfully. How many of you want a gift when you do not think the other person really wants to make it as a gift to you? Well, God doesn't want a gift like that. Might as well keep it. It won't do you any good. There's a funny story that uh, the Grahams tell on each other, Dr. and Mrs. Billy Graham. When they first got married, uh, Billy was a struggling young preacher, and uh, they went on their honeymoon, and uh, they went to church on Sunday morning, and the collection plate was passed, and he didn't have very much money, and he fished in his pocket, and there were two bills of currency, and he got hold of what he thought was a $1 bill, but it was a $20 bill, and he put it in the collection plate, and then when the collection plate went by, he realized what he had done. <laughs> and so he said to Ruth, I put the 20 in, and I meant to put the 1 in. And, and she said, well, you might as well go get the 20 because you're only going to get credit for one. <laughs> and that, that's right. Uh, what God wants is a gift that is given uh, from the heart. Uh, and Paul tells us to give themselves first, to give proportionately. Uh, some of us have recognized long ago that a tithe uh, is really an excellent way to begin and uh, to give proportionately according to your income and to give consistently. Paul brings all of this out in 2 Corinthians because this enables the work to continue uh, to go on. But give prayerfully. Put your prayers into it. And then let me say this in regard to key 73 and repentance and forgiveness. The greatest gift that we can give, of course, is our hearts to the Lord. And then when we have given our hearts to him and we invest our money in the spread of his kingdom, Think of what it means to really bring Jesus Christ to a, into another person's life as the Holy Spirit enables you to present Christ in his claims. Think about it. Think what it does. It's better than building big buildings, better than big, building big churches. What a tremendous thing Key 73 offers to us in this act of giving and in this repentance and this study of our attitude and our prayer and repentance and then our gift. Let me close with this. Last uh, week I got some things from Dr. Norman Vincent Peale's Foundation for Christian Living up in New York. In it there was a remarkable story of how a shopkeeper at Christmas time had his whole world changed as the telephone began to ring in his shop. He was working and scraping together money he had a precious little five-year-old boy, and a five-year-old at Christmas is something beautiful to behold. And he was looking forward so much to Christmas Day, and he was working late in his shop, and the phone rang, but it was a terrible thing that he heard on the telephone. His little five-year-old boy had been run over and killed by an automobile. And worse than that, 
The boy who had run over his five-year-old son and killed him was a delinquent who had been in trouble repeatedly. The delinquent's name is Al Masters. Al Masters was living in a home where there was no love. His father and mother quarreled violently and frequently. And Al Masters, hearing his father and mother in the bedroom screaming and shouting at each other in a quarrel, and the, own, and the hostility that he felt within himself for what they were doing ran through the hall, picked up his mother's purse, snatched the car keys out of it, ran outside and got in the car and roared down the street 70 miles an hour. The little five-year-old who was coming across the street never had a chance. He never even saw the car. And the boy never even saw him when he hit him and killed him. The police caught Al Masters. And the father who had spent the whole night grieving and thinking about that wild delinquent Al Masters who had run over his son was seething with hatred. He couldn't wait for daylight to come. He couldn't wait to get to his attorney. And when he went in his, attorney, in his attorney's office, he said, I know he's just 15. And I know what they're going to do. They're going to say he comes under the juvenile laws, but I want him dead. He killed my kid. I want him to die for it. And he had nothing but cold, implacable hatred for Al Masters. After the funeral, as the days began to drag on toward Christmas, the father was bitter and full of pain and agony inside. On Christmas Day, his mother, the little boy's mother, the, the shopkeeper's wife, wanted her husband to go with her to church, to take her to church. In the church, the minister began to preach about the love and the forgiveness of God and how Christ could come into a heart and change it. And that sullen shopkeeper turned to his wife with tears, and he said, maybe if we surrender this thing to Christ, maybe he can change it for us. And so when they got home, they knelt and they prayed to Christ to come into their hearts and to give them victory over the hatred which they felt for Al Masters. The father said that that night he had a dream. He dreamed that his five-year-old had grown up, and he was about 18. And his five-year-old was walking, uh, 18, was walking toward him, and he was saying to him, Dad, it's all right about that Al Masters. You ought to get to know him. And so, the next day, he called Al Masters and asked him if he would like to come and work in his shop. He gave him a job after school. He began to take him home for dinner. He got to know the boy, and he found out what had happened in his home and about all the hurt that was wrapped up inside that Al Masters. Well, Al Masters began to think that that shopkeeper was the greatest man he'd ever known. Christ turned hatred into love. He brought something fine out of bitterness and pain in the heart of that father. And he brought something fine out of a turbulent, violent youth. This is what we, when we give ourselves first to Christ and then make gifts of our money and our talent and our time to him, can really see in the transforming love of Jesus Christ in the minds and hearts of people. No greater gift could we bring him at Christmas.
and to bring him our own heart and to bring someone else with us when we go to him. Let us stand in prayer. What can I give him as poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I'd bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, then I'd do my part. What can I give him? I'll give him my heart. Oh, Heavenly Father, as the days draw near to Christmas, help us to let them be full of joy. Help us not to see our hearts and lives and homes robbed of that, those spiritual graces which you can bring to us by the deceptions which Satan works. Help us not to be carnal and vain in our giving and to let Satan fill our heart as Ananias and Sapphira. But help us as the apostles to allow the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with your love, with your joy, and with your forgiveness. And then guide us and supervise us in the use of our gifts so that others may know thee too. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all now and forevermore.